Chapter 15, Part 2 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. The Metropolis of India and its Himalayan Sanatorium, Part 2. Friday, January 9th. Morning after morning, the sun rises in an unclouded sky. And this is the only advantage of the Indian climate. You may depend on fine weather, may settle, as someone said to me, the exact date of a picnic two months beforehand, without fears for the weather. The rainfall of the year is condensed into three months of July, August, and September. The rainy season, the season of malarious fevers. We went out early and drove to Fort William. Inside those palisaded defenses and once strong walls and towers, you find broad graveled roads laid out round the quiet quadrangles, with neat barrack and arsenals, magazines and storerooms. There are six gateways with drawbridges, and over each is a house for the commander-in-chief and the officers. The Fort Church and the Catholic Chapel complete the military and non-bellicose-looking little town. In the center, there is the circular pillar with the sliding boom that daily drops at the hour of 1 p.m. Abdullah, our guide and native servant, then took us through the bathing ghat on the Hoogli, and stopped before a space walled in from the center of which issued smoke. It was the Natola Burning Cut, or crematorium, where the bodies of the natives are burnt. In the center of the square there was a burning pile, on which, face downwards, with the arms crossed behind the back, lay a body. The legs were also doubled up, but as we looked, first one and then the other relaxed with the heat and dropped down. A little further on, there was a smoldering pile, where another body had been reduced to ashes, and in a corner a stretcher with a body covered over awaiting cremation. It takes three hours for each body to burn, and after it has been reduced to ashes, they are gathered up and cast into the sacred waters of the Hoogli. The Hindu lays the body on the pile and places the fire in the mouth, but the Mohammedan, who has no caste, does the meaner parts of lighting and attending to the funeral pile. Government provides the wood and the attendance, making a charge of three rupees, seven annas for an adult, with a reduced scale for children. Strange and wrong as it may seem to say so, there is no doubt the horror of seeing the process seemed greatly lessened by the shade of the skin. Were it white, we should not get over the ghastly sight for many a day. That afternoon, we drove out to the botanical gardens, crossing the Hoogli on a wooden bridge, and driving through the busy manufacturing suburb of Haura, and the village of Sipur. They are five miles from the town, and their beauty is consequently lost to Calcutta. Not one single person did we meet there that afternoon. The triad of noble trees, the banyan, with the people on either side the glorious avenue of palmyra palms, with others of asoki and mahogany branching off, 
are truly wasting their freshness on the desert air. There are groups of casuarina trees about the lake, draped with tropical climbers, or rotans, and a palmetum, or palm nursery, where different species of the family are tended and reared. We went into the cool, shady retreat, where the light struggles dimly through the cocoa fiber netting onto the festoons of tropical parasites, the orchids and the ferns, forming a beautiful, natural outdoor conservatory. Passing the marble urn, which bears an inscription by Bishop Eber, to Dr. Roxburgh, curator of the garden, and to which so many avenues converge, we come to a grove. Under this, we walked along, looking at the network of trunks, as we thought, but as we came to trace them home, we discovered that they were but gigantic roots, depending from the branches, part of the stupendous banyan tree, that thus extends its monstrous bulk to a diameter of 800 feet. This grove is very beautiful, formed as it is of a colonnade of branches, of the 170 aerial-depending roots. As we drove home, we were overtaken by one of those unhealthy river mists, densest in the villages we passed through, owing to the smoke of their dung fires being unable to rise through the pall. Saturday, January 10th. C went out to Dum Dum, the military cantonment of Calcutta, to see a battalion of his old regiment, the 23rd Royal Welsh Fusiliers, quartered there. Later in the day, we went to the memorial meeting of the town hall in honor of the memory of the great Hindu patriot, the late Christodos Pal. The Maharaja of Tagore assented to my wish to go, but on being led up to the platform, I was not prepared to find myself the only lady amongst the thousands, chiefly natives, assembled. However, I was rewarded for the discomfort of the situation by the great interest of a speech delivered by Dr. Mohendra Lai Sakar, a homeopathic doctor, after those of the Lieutenant Governor, the Chief Justice, Sir Richard Garth, and Sir Stuart Bailey, Member of Council, etc., which for eloquence and impressiveness was most remarkable. Christodas Paul was editor of the Hindu Patriot, a member of the Legislative Council, and a man of most brilliant parts and oratorical gifts, respected equally by European and Native. As the representative meeting of that day testified, including, as it did, the highest European officials and members of Council, with a large number of Maharajas and Rajas, it was terribly hot, and the meeting lasted for over two hours. Sunday, January 11th to the cathedral for morning service. The exterior of the Gothic architecture is entirely spoiled by the discoloration of the stone by stress of weather, and the interior produces a curious effect in the morning light, which comes reflected through bright blue glass. The finest part of the cathedral is the vestry or entrance, containing some beautiful tablets and the statue of Bishop Aber. As no one in India thinks of walking, not even to church, it is here that the waiting crowd, with the police maneuvering at the file of carriages, somewhat resembles the getting away after an entertainment. We left Calcutta 
but the seal determinus that afternoon on an expedition to Darjeeling, the hill station in the Himalayas. The journey across some burnt-up plains, with occasional settlements of mud huts in the neighborhood of a gheel or a mango tope, was very hot and dirty. At sundown, we were obliged to close the windows on account of the malarious mist rising from the marshes. A fellow passenger, an indigo planter, left the carriage at one of the small stations, who was going to be carried thirty-three miles in a palki by sixteen coolies in relays. He told us he should sleep comfortably in the bed prepared inside, whilst they carried him all through the night, over hill and dale, and across four rivers in boats. At eight in the evening, we arrived at Dambukila, and embarked on a steamer to cross the Ganges, meanwhile having dinner on board. At Sarah, on the opposite side, we settled ourselves for the night in the short, narrow carriage running on the meter-gauge line, and which oscillates so very unpleasantly. There are no sleeping cars on the Indian railways, but with the carriage to ourselves, we manage seven or eight hours sleep. Not bad, when we think of the random rolling we experienced. Here is where the resi and pillow, rolled up in a strap in the daytime, are an absolute necessity for traveling in India. Every one has them, and not only are they useful for railway traveling, but invaluable also in hotels. Many is the bitter cold night on which we have arrived and been shown into the greatless and fireless room with only a single sheet on the bed. Chota Hasri and a wash at Siligori the next morning sent us on our way rejoicing in the little toy train of the Darjeeling and Himalayan Railway. It is in reality a steam tramway and runs along by the side of the old Cart Hill Road on a gauge only two feet in width. The first-class compartments are divided by a trellis work, and the second and third are open cars. They run along smoothly and swiftly, raised but a few inches off the ground. This railway is considered a great, by some the greatest engineering feat, mounting as it does 7,000 feet into the heart of the Himalayas, with a gradient as steep as one in twenty and radii of one to sixteen. It was undertaken chiefly for the humane purpose of giving work to the natives during the Great Bengal Famine of 1874. Two years saw its completion at the moderate cost of three thousand pounds a mile. Creeping cautiously across the Manhunudi River, on the crankiest of wooden bridges, we ran rapidly over the plain for nine miles and then entered an avenue in the forest. The ascent began through a sail forest, densely overgrown with jungle, and then proceeded to a forest more varied with birch, maple, oak, and wild mango. The trunks of these huge trees were clothed with epiphytes, a creeper of large green leaves of much the same shape as our lords and ladies. It was curious to note how the higher we ascended, the hardier became the species of trees. Thus, in one day, we were to pass through varying vegetation and varying climes. From the oppressive heat of the plain to the moist, rarefied atmosphere of the mountain altitudes, from the tropical wealth of vegetation 
to the hardier kinds of trees and shrubs. Strangely enough, in these latter, you do not see the pine, spruce fir, or larch, for the hardiest species found in the Himalayan peaks are magnolia, laurel, holly, olive, maple, and oak. On and on through this forest-clad side of the mountain we traveled, fascinated by the dense tangle of jungle on either hand. These impenetrable depths, we knew, were the lair of the leopard and cheetah. We longed to see the glare of green eyes in the undergrowth and to hear the crash of an elephant's approach. But a mild pleasure lay in the monkeys, who crept out in great numbers and swung on the branches of the trees overhead, jabbering and mocking us as we passed. The gullies were filled with wild banana trees, yielding a bitter, acrid fruit. All this time we were rising rapidly above the vast plain of Bengal, that lay like a shining sheet at our feet, melting away into golden mist. We were now coming to the first of the great engineering wonders of this line of wonders, the circle. Passing under a bridge, we described a distinct circle round the circumference of a small hill, and, gradually ascending round the further curve, were immediately afterwards passing over the same identical bridge. Here, as with all the Himalayan range, the Sikkim hills run in tiers, one above the other, rising in the first instant sheer out of the plain. There opened before us one of those gorgeous amphitheaters of hills, seen so often during the ascent. You come upon an immeasurable hollow, and lying literally in amphitheatrical tiers, beneath are ranges of mountains within the mountains, dwindling so far away, down, down into hills, and the hills again into mere knolls, by comparison with the gigantic monsters of the background. Frequently looking down into this crater, filled with hilltops, we saw perched up on one a planter's bungalow and factory, with the tea garden terracing up and down the side of the mountain, the regular lines of the stunted bushes, with the space of earth between. Once, for many miles, we swept round the mighty circle of the amphitheater, clinging halfway up on the sides of the depthless gorge, then passing from one mountain to another, gradually rising. We described a double curve, one line of rails above the other, and passing away behind the mountains, ascended others higher and farther upwards. Thus we crept stealthily upwards, through the long morning hours. After Giabari, we reached the Gumtis, along zigzags on the sides of the hill, and then came in quick succession several reversing stations. Here the train goes backwards and forwards in short zigzags, helping us to rise some hundred feet in a very few minutes. How wonderful the Australians think their three zigzags on the Blue Mountains! What would they say to these? Again, further on, we described a perfect figure of eight, but our twistings and curvings were so wonderful that at last we seemed to grow accustomed to see the line we were to pass just above us, the line we had passed just below. Many and many were the so-called agony points, where the carriage was projecting over the precipice, so close the rail was laid to the edge. Some were rendered more excruciatingly anxious by the train, taking a sharp curve on this precarious foothold. 
It is a grand and exalted feeling that takes possession of you now, when you have lost sight of the plane and the workaday life being carried on there, when you are alone looking down into the spur ranges, a tumultuous mass of peaks below, and then raise the eye to the storm-beaten ones above, so near the sky as to be known only to the eye of their creator. The Himalayas, meaning in Sanskrit, the abode of snow, are the grandest mountain wall that nature has ever raised. It was becoming keenly cold. What was our agony to see creeping down the mountainside of a wall of fog and mist? We passed into the cloud, and gloom and dampness enveloped us. Darjeeling, we were always told, is up in the clouds, and we anxiously thought how it might remain so in reality during our stay there. Our enthusiasm was suddenly quenched, and our disappointment very keen at losing all the glorious views, wiped out so ruthlessly in those few seconds. For the remainder of the journey, clouds swept around us, lifting occasionally for a minute to show us the valley, where more clouds lay floating below. We had luncheon at an elevation of 4,000 feet at Kersiong, where the platform runs alongside of the neat hotel. At Sanada, we did not grumble at the fog so much, for at all times the air here is thick and cold from the condensed moisture of the vast forests that cover the western slopes of Mount Sinchul. Up and up we climbed, the temperature rapidly falling and the cold ever increasing. The rails became greasy from the moisture and necessitated constant stoppages to allow of the Zemindras running in front with handfuls of sand. Occasionally, we passed through the midst of some very dirty bazaar or settlement of tumble-down huts, crowded together for warmth and the mutual support afforded to the mud and bamboo-framed walls, which prevail even in these high latitudes. Here live the picturesque and varied mountain tribes belonging to the frontier provinces around Darjeeling, a sturdy, independent population. They are the tall Bhutias, the short and stunted Latres, and Lambus, Nepalese, Kabbalese, and stalwart Tibetans, dashing by on their hardy mountain ponies. For the time being, with the cold atmosphere, and amongst these hardy northern tribes, we feel transported into Norway, Lapland, or Finland. The Lepkas, the aboriginals of Sikkim, are the most picturesque among the medley of races. They are of very small stature and thick-set frame, with a broad, flat face, oblique eyes, and high cheekbones. The men wear their coarse black hair in one pigtail, and the women in two, often the only distinguishing feature between the sexes. The Lepcha is an arrant coward, but a born naturalist, and has a name for every shrub and plant in Sikkim. Their dress consists of a robe of blue and white striped cloth, woven by the women, crossed over the breast, and gathered in with an ornamented girdle. Into this is stuck the kukuri, or short sword, which none are without. They wear a colored woolen comforter wound around their caps, and altogether their dwarf stature, flattened faces, and excessive dirt remind one of the Laplanders. The Limbus can always be known by their mass of black, uncombed hair, 
hanging in elfin locks about their yellow faces. They are gross feeders, being particularly fond of pork. The Nepalese emigrate in large numbers to British Seacombe, where they find ready employment in the tea gardens. British Seacombe has been called a cave of Abdalam for Nepal, whose draconian laws cause offenders to flee across the border for safety. The Bhutia race is chiefly interesting from its womankind. Tall and handsome are the Bhutia women, with a circlet of gold and silver framing their broad beaming faces. They wear magnificent silver girdles and curiously wrought necklaces, with earrings so massive that the thin strip of flesh, drawn out in the lobe of the ear, barely supports their weight. They have curious amulets set with turquoise stones, which, though much cracked and flawed, suit the quaint setting and design. The Bhutias are followers of the red-capped sect of Lamas, a kind of Buddhism, but they offer propitiatory sacrifices to evil spirits, as may be seen by the array of bamboo staffs about their huts, from which float cotton streamers and rags with type prayers, set up to frighten the spirits away. These Bhutia women have an enormous capacity for carrying weights, being usually employed as porters at the station. They support the whole weight on their heads, suspending it by a string passed round the forehead. It is told how a Bhutia woman once carried a grand piano from Pukabari to Darjeeling in three days and arrived quite fresh. During the winter, Many Tibetans may be seen coming through that mysterious and forbidden pass into Sikkim for trading purposes. In their encampments, it is common to see one woman in the same tent with five or six men, as polyandry prevails among the Tibetans. Most of those rough little ponies, with their creels balanced on either side with merchandise that we met toiling up in files, come from Tibet. Goom the highest railway station in the old world, if not in the universe, was reached in fog. It is 7,400 feet above the level of the sea. From here, we ran downhill for four miles, till a turn round the angle of a jutting rock brought Darjeeling in view. A gleam of sunshine, weak and watery owing to the vapory clouds it pierced through, showed us the hillside, dotted with innumerable pretty bungalows. Darjeeling lies partly in a basin formed by the mountains, and here is the bazaar and native quarter, on a mount which you would almost think nature had purposely thrown up midway in the valley for it, stands the Eden Sanatorium, such a pretty, ornate building it is, where people suffering from the fever of the plains come up to be nursed by the clever sisters of mercy from Kluwer. There is accommodation for first, second, and third-class patients, so all degrees can avail themselves of the sanatorium. Immediately under the high mount of the observatory hill, on the highest ground of all, lies the pretty stone church and the white via mansion called the Shrubberies, the official residence of the lieutenant governor. Darjeeling was originally established as a sanatorium for the invalid soldiers of all the British troops in India. A cantonment was founded at Jalafor, 700 feet higher than Darjeeling, making in all 
a height of 7,969 feet above the level of the sea. There was a time when for soldiers to come to India meant it was very questionable whether they would ever return. Darjeeling has been the means of restoration to thousands of England's sons, fever-stricken on the plains of Bengal. Arrived at the barn-like station, the porters, two Bhutia women, carried our luggage up to Woodlands Hotel. The dreariness of this abode could hardly be overdrawn. Dark and chill were the rooms, scant and bad the fare, and great depression ensued under such sad circumstances. We walked down to the post office and passed the club, saw some of the rows of ears built as a speculation, and which command such exorbitant prices, 1,000 to 2,000 rupees per month, during the season and then the clouds returned with the close of day, and we could see no more. I had got a severe chill and touch of fever from our night journey across the plain, and went to bed shivering and very miserable. End of chapter 15, part 2